Thanks for tuning in and making Res Life a part of your day. Whether this is your first time listening or this is a part of your weekly rhythm, we are glad you're here. If you'd like to connect more throughout the week, check us out at reslife.org, download our app, or follow us on social media. It's time for today's message, so let's dive in. We are talking about Jesus' Passion Week. Uh, really, his death, burial, resurrection, and the things that led up his betrayal and uh, everything that, that happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, we've been talking about those types of things. And uh, today I want to remind you, Jesus goes with his disciples to the upper room. They have what we refer to as the Last Supper, right? And the Apostle Paul said this. He said that the same night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So when they have had that last supper, Judas is there. Then Judas leaves and goes to see the high priest because he's already talked to him and said, how much will you give me if I betray him to you? And so he sees the opportunity. He knows that Jesus regularly goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, uh, you can go to that garden still today. It probably doesn't look much like what it did in Jesus' day. I think it was much more lush. The, the trees that you can see, they say that they could possibly be over 2,000 years old. Some of the same trees that were there when Jesus was there, right? And he, he went to the garden, <clears throat> not far at all, outside the, the gates of Jerusalem, and it says in Matthew 26, then Jesus came with them to the place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. So Jesus is in agony. Uh, this is, he, he knows what's coming. And he goes to this place where he regularly goes to pray. And by the way, it's great when you have a place that you regularly go to pray, to meditate on the scripture, a time and a place are really great. Now he's got with him only three of the disciples. Now he's got the 70, he has the 12, but now he just has Peter, James, and John. How many of you realize you cannot have the same relationship with everybody? Right? But you need to have close relationship with some people. And these are Jesus' inner circle. right? And he wants them to support him in prayer. Now, how many of you realize that praying for somebody makes a difference? When you pray, it makes a difference. When somebody prays for you, it makes a difference. And Jesus said, I'm sorrowful even to death. Now, it's not that he's looking to avoid physical death. But what's going to happen is he's going to take our sin, he's going to take our sickness. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, he that knew no sin, that's Jesus, became sin for us, a sin offering for us. And that's what's going to be happening on the cross. That's where he's going to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's going to be separated from God. He knows it, right? And then on top of all of that, I remember in the Apostles' Creed, it says he descended into... Where? 
he descended into hell. Acts 2.24 says, whom God has raised up, having loosed the pains or the torments of death. So, so he went to a place where the condemned went. He went to the place of condemnation. And, and uh, he knows that that's coming as he's paying for your sin and my sin. And he's going through this tremendous struggle on the inside, right? And he says to the disciples, you stay here. He said, you pray with me, you watch with me. And again, you were not meant to do life alone. And definitely you cannot do the Christian life alone. He went a little further. He fell on his faith praying, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Now, in a, a, a little later, in Matthew 26, he said, says, then he, he left them, the disciples, and went again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. So Jesus is praying, and he says the exact same words three times. He prays the same prayer three times. It's a prayer of commitment. And he's saying, God, not my will, but your will. In other words, Jesus, his desire is to not go to the cross. His desire is, is to not be separated from God. His desire is to not descend into hell. But he says, God, not my will, but your will be done. He is surrendering his will. He's laying down his desires. How many ever had to do that? Now, we've been talking about it in Romans chapter 12 in verse 1. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is, King James says, your reasonable service. Other translations say your spiritual worship. And it's saying you present your body to God. And how many of you realize that sometimes your body doesn't want to do the right thing? And so you present it to God again. And then you present it to God again. No, look, Jesus prayed the same prayer three times. That's Jesus. Right? How many of you think you might need to pray it 12 times? Or maybe, maybe 12 times in an hour. Right? You, you and, as often as we need to surrender our will, right, our desires to God, we need to pray that prayer of commitment. And you can pray that prayer however many times you need to pray that prayer. Right? But here's one of the things that has that, uh, often happened. We just think that all prayer is the same. But you look at your Bible, there's a prayer of commitment. There's a prayer of faith. There's a prayer of petition. There's a prayer of thanksgiving. There's a prayer of agreement. There's a prayer of intercession. Right? Now, every one of those are different kinds of prayer. And every one of them functions differently, has different rules. It's kind of like sports. Right? Now, we have basketball. We have baseball. We have soccer. We have golf. You play all of them with a ball but you cannot golf with football rules, can you? But they all have the ball. They're all sports. Well, it's just sports. Why can't we just do it all the same? Because different sports have different rules. Right? Different prayers have different rules. So the prayer of commitment, you could pray 50 times a day, right? But you can't pray the prayer of faith 50 times a day, right? 
James chapter 5, is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him. Anointing of oil in the name of the Lord and the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. If he's committed any sins, they'll be forgiven him. Now, to pray the prayer of faith, listen, you have to know the will of God. Right? So you can't pray for a sick person and say, Lord, if it be your will. Still here? Because you need to know what God's will is. To pray the prayer. You cannot pray the prayer of faith without knowing the will of God. Right? So when you pray the prayer of faith, you just pray that prayer one time. And Jesus said, you believe that you receive when you pray. Right? So if you go for somebody to, to pay, pray somebody for, for healing and, and you pray, if it be thy will, right? that's not the prayer of faith. So what happens is this. You either get no help, you get the help that the doctor can give you, and if it's terminal, you die. Because that's not the prayer of faith. And the prayer of faith brings healing to the sick. The Lord will raise him up. But if you try to pray the prayer of faith with the rules for the prayer of commitment, that's like playing golf with football rules. It won't work. Right? So what Jesus did is a phenomenal example to you and to me. When our body, when our desires want to go one way, all right, and we know the will of God is to go a different way, right? or even if we don't know, we can say, Lord, it, you know, if it's your will, I will do it. Right? You might think, maybe God wants me to do something. What should I do? Surrender and say, God, if it's your will, if it's your will, I'll do it. Right? So just like Jesus, we can pray that prayer of commitment again and again and again. But other types of prayer are different. Right? And so we need to understand that there's different types of prayer and each one has different rules. Luke 22, verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed earnestly. Then his sweat became like drapes, great drops of blood falling to the ground. Right? Jesus is at the absolute limit. I mean, it wasn't like it was easy for Jesus to go to the cross. But this is why it's so, so important to understand what Jesus went through, because he understands when you and I face temptation. That's why the Bible says in Hebrews 2, verse 18, that he himself also suffered being tempted. He is able to aid those who are tempted. You will never face a temptation that Jesus does not understand the pressure that you're under. And the Bible says that he is able to help you and I get through the temptations that we face. Now, in John 18, in verse 3, then Judas having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Right? Now, he received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests. You know, in my mind, I always pictured Judas showing up with like 20 people. All right? But that is not what happened. It says that a detachment of troops, another one of the gospels says this, a cohort. That is one-tenth of a legion. So that's 600 soldiers that are coming with Judas. Right? On top of that, there are the temple police. Right? And these are fierce. These guys are highly, highly trained. Right? They're expecting to have problems coming for Jesus. Right? Now, 
the, the Roman troops, they're coming from the Tower of Antonia. Now, you can still, there's a little bit of it still standing today, but this is what, we've actually got a picture of what it looked like in the day. It was built by Herod the Great. You guys, you guys got that picture? There it is, right? This is where the troops would have been stationed, right? It's less than two miles to the, the, the Garden of Gethsemane. See, so they're coming out of there. And by the way, Herod the Great built this, and it's called the, the, uh, the Tower of Antonia because he made it in honor of Mark Anthony. Anybody remember Mark Anthony from, from history? Mark Anthony and, and Herod the Great are friends. Uh, Mark Anthony's girlfriend is Cleopatra, right? They are, they, 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 they are literally trying to take over the, 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 the Roman Empire. They have the war with Octavian. They lose the battle. They escape down to Egypt, and they're both, both of them uh, commit suicide. And they commit suicide because they realize they're going to be taken back to Rome, and they're going to be part of a triumph where they're literally stripped naked and taken down through the streets of Rome. And preferring anything to that, they both commit suicide. So Herod the Great, Mark Anthony, Cleopatra. How many of you know anything about them from history? Four of you. My God. Goodness. All right. Well, well, trust me, they're just famous. All right. Famous people. All right. So it says that in, in Matthew 26, it says they came with a great multitude. They've got swords. They've got clubs. Right? Uh, they are figuring that there's going to be a lot of trouble bringing Jesus in. So Jesus says to them when they come, whom are you seeking? Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. John, this is John's gospel, 18th chapter, 6th verse. Then Jesus said to him, I am he. Now, the he is italicized. In other words, it's not in the original language, in the original Greek. So Jesus literally just said, I am. It's the exact same thing that God said to Abraham, excuse me, Abraham, to uh, Moses. When Moses is at the burning bush, Moses said, who shall I say sent me? God said, I am. I am that I am has sent you. Now, Jesus says the exact same words, I am. And when he said that, the Bible says they drew back and fell to the ground. 600 plus men. Jesus just says, I am. And God's power was manifest and they all fell down. Right Now, as they're getting up, Peter grabs a sword, right? And he cuts off the high priest's secretary's ear, right? And Jesus goes over and heals the man's ear, puts it back, right? Now, here's what I want you to understand. You need to understand, Jesus is in control of the situation. Jesus said, no one takes my life. He said, I lay it down. Jesus said to Peter and the disciples, he said, don't you know that right now I could pray and God would send me 12 legions of angels. Now, a legion is 6,000. So that's 72,000 angels. You say, well, what could they do? Well, in the Old Testament, one angel killed over 100,000 men in one night. They could have wiped out the entire population of the planet. All right? So Jesus is in control. But I think it's so interesting. He says, I am, and God's power is manifest, and they fall over backwards. You know, in the Old Testament, it tells us that the glory of God, they would pray and the glory of God would come on the temple and the priests could not stand. They couldn't stand. It would just knock them over. The glory of God, right? 
In uh, Acts chapter 10, Peter is praying on the roof, and the Bible says he falls into a trance. He falls into a trance. The power of God comes on him, he falls down. I think it's interesting that Paul gets knocked off his donkey on the way to Damascus. Jesus said, who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He said, I am. And God's power is manifested right there. Now, Mark 14, verse 51. Now, a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked for years. This just, like, drove me crazy. What's a naked boy doing in the garden anyway? You know, what's, what's going on? All right. Well, I'm going to tell you what's going on, all right? Now, the Bible says this linen cloth, all right? The linen cloth. It's actually a burial shroud. It's the same cloth that they buried Jesus in. It's the same cloth that they mentioned they buried Lazarus in. When someone would die, they would prepare the body, they'd wash the body, and they would put it in this linen cloth this linen burial shroud. When Jesus said, I am, and the power of God fell in that place, this young man got raised from the dead. Now, in the Old Testament, we find people raised from the dead. Elisha raised a widow's son from the dead. And Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the widow of Nain from the dead. But they were going to die again. This young man also is going to die again. Right? But he's raised from the dead by the power of God when Jesus simply said, I am. Right? So over in 1 Corinthians 15, I want to take a moment and I want to talk to you about resurrection. Uh, so often today, because so much Eastern religion has come into Western culture, people do not realize the importance of the body. Right? 1 Corinthians 15, 21. For since by man came death, By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all died. Even so in Christ, all should be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ, number one. The first fruits, two. Afterwards, those who are Christ at his coming, three. And then four. Then comes the end or the general resurrection. So the first to be raised from the dead, to never die again, is Christ. Second, first fruits. Then those that are Christ, when he comes back. How many know he's coming back? Every New Testament author, even those that only wrote one chapter, every one of them talks about Jesus coming back. And then the end, or the general resurrection. I think we've all heard Plenty about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, right? But in Matthew 27, it says this. Now behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rock split, and the graves were opened. And many dead bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of their graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So after Jesus' resurrection, right, dead bodies are raised, right? And they go walking through the streets of Jerusalem. Can you imagine 
seeing your Uncle Tom that died 25 years ago showing up at the family reunion. But that's what happened when Jesus arose from the dead. And the Bible calls these the first fruits. Now, here's why. God wanted us to know that when he raised Jesus, that was not a solo event. But that there was resurrection power. Right? And that power was not just for Jesus. Right? And notice, it's those that they're, they're around Jerusalem. And they come in, they're walking in Jerusalem. I believe that that's why when Joseph was dying in Egypt, the Bible says, by faith, he gave commandment concerning his bones. And he said, don't you bury me here. He said, you take me back and you bury me with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because he had revelation and he knew the first resurrection's coming and I want to go with the first group. I'm not sticking around. I'm getting the whole package as soon as possible. All right? So when Jesus arose, he did not arise solo. Right? Along with him, God raised many godly people and they wrote, their, their bodies were raised and they were actually seen walking around in the streets in Jerusalem. The Bible refers to them as the first fruits. Christ, the first fruits, after those who are Christ at his coming. He's coming back. Right? In fact, we could talk about it, but we don't have time right now. He's coming back twice more, right? just so you get it. Hebrews 9, 26. So Christ was offered to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him. Who's he coming back for next time? Those who eagerly wait for him. He's not coming for everybody. He's coming for those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Afterwards, those that are his at his coming. Um, probably the easiest place to talk about this is from 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep or those who have died in Christ, least you sorrow as others that have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep or who have died in Jesus. So he's saying those that are believers that have died. Right now, if you're a believer and your body dies, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Right? So your soul and your spirit are with the Lord. Right? But what about your body? We put it in a grave. For this I say to you by the word of the Lord, verse 15, that we are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord, will by no means proceed, go ahead of, or receive our redemption before others. We're not going to get it before those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise first. What's that talking about? Your body. Jesus redeemed you spirit, soul, and body. When we bury somebody in America, in fact, this is true in any Christian nation, right? We put their feet facing east and their head facing west. You say, why do we do that? Because the Bible says that when Jesus appears, he'll appear in the eastern sky. So you pop up and you go, hey, Jesus, here I am. You were just ready. You're ready. You say, well, what, how's God going to do that? I don't have a clue. What if you're burned in a fire? What if you're eaten by a shark? 
What's God going to do? This is what I know. I know that the God who said, let there be light, and the universe leaped into existence will not have problems. I don't know if he's going to clone you, what he's going to do, but Job in his finest hour, he's going through trials, but in his finest hour, this is what he said. He said, this I know, not I hope, this I know, that after the worms have eaten my body, that I will see him in the flesh. I will see him and not another. He said, it's not going to be somebody else. It's going to be me. He said, and I know even though my body decays, the day is coming when he's coming back and he's going to raise me up because he redeemed you spirit, soul, and body. All right. Then those who are alive and remain, first the dead rise. All right. Then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Then the believers that are alive. Now, the Bible tells us how fast. It says, in the twinkling of an eye. It's actually been translated in an atomic second. Faster than your, your, your eyelid can close and open. Right? In 1 Corinthians, it says, behold, I show you a mystery. He said, we'll not all die, all right? but we'll all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump for the trump will sound and the dead in Christ will ride first. And then we who are alive will be changed instantly. You're going to have a body like the body that Jesus has. Philippians 3 says, who will transform our lonely body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able to subdue all things unto himself. So the Bible says when Jesus comes back, that your body will be like Jesus' body. You say, what does that mean? Well, he could walk through a wall, but he could eat a piece of fish and have some honeycomb. Wow. And I know there's no calories. Hallelujah. <laughs> so then we're going to go and we're going to be with the Lord. Now, you can talk to different theologians and they have different ideas. Right? Some people say you're going to go to heaven for three and a half years. Some people say you're going to go to heaven for seven years. I could tell you what it's going to be because I'm right. <laughs> but it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, you're going to go and you are going to go to the marriage supper of the lamb. You say, what is that? That is a party, right? God has been planning a party for 6,000 years and he's a good party planner, right? You, you do not want to miss this. All right. And then you're coming back with him. Right? You're coming back with him. Zechariah 14 says it this way, thus the Lord your God will come in all the saints with you. He's not going to come for you. He's coming with you. All right. Jude says it a little bit differently. Right? He said that the Enoch has prophesied and said, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s times 10,000s times 10,000s of the saints to execute judgment on all to convict all who among them of the godly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have sent against him. But the Lord comes with the saints. He's going to come for you, but then he's coming back with you, right? And then Revelation chapter 20, and then the end. 
then the general resurrection. So Christ first, first fruits, then Jesus comes back, the dead are raised, and those that are alive are caught up together to meet him in the air. I believe there's people that are here today. You're going to be among those that are caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Amen. But then Revelation 20, and I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who'd been beheaded for their witness of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their heads and on their hands. And they lived and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. First resurrection again, right? This is, a, this is the, the, the resurrection, the first fruits resurrection, right? We're going to reign with Christ for what? Thousand years. Then the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So when Jesus comes back, the only people that get raised are the believers and those that are alive, that are believing, that are believers. The rest of the dead do not live again. Their bodies don't come out until the thousand years are finished. This is the first resurrection or the first fruits and that resurrection of those that believe. All right. Blessed is holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death has no power, but they shall reign and shall, she'll be, excuse me, she priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. Now, after the thousand years is the eternal kingdom, right? Your salvation is not just a thousand years. There's an eternal kingdom, right? Now, as you're reading the New Testament, there's a, a little phrase that you need to be watching out for, all right? Philippians 3, 11, Paul says this, if by any means I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead, right? So there is a resurrection from or from among the dead, and the Bible talks of the resurrection of the dead. From the dead is the resurrection for the believers, Right? Of the dead is after the thousand years, and everybody is included. Almost everybody that will be in that resurrection will be a non-believer. And that's what Revelation chapter 20 is about. It's the judgment of non-believers, right? So there's a resurrection from the dead. Paul said, that's what I'm shooting for, right? And then there's a resurrection of the dead, which is the general resurrection, Christ, then the first fruits, those that were in that area that were raised from the dead, then there's the resurrection of the believers, right? When he comes back, the first fruits resurrection, right? And then after that thousand year reign, there is the general resurrection of all people who stand before God and give an account. Say, would you please bow your heads for just a moment. I was uh, reading this this week in a book about uh, Hudson Taylor, who started the uh, Inland China Mission. And, and he said he was on his way to get in a boat. And an old man, he said, I don't know how he found us. He said, but he, he came up and he says, I asked his name. And he said, my name is Dig Zing. 
He says, I have a question that is distressing me. He says, and I can't find an answer. He said, I don't know what to do with my sins. He said, our scholars tell us that there's no future state, that when you're dead, you're dead like a dog. But I find it hard to believe. I lie in my bed and I think. I sit alone in the daytime and I think and I think and I think again. But I cannot tell what I can do about my sins. I'm 72 years old. And I don't expect to live another decade. Can you tell me what I can do with my sins? You know, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to take care of our sin problem. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, that he that knew no sin, Jesus, became a sin offering for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Now, you may know that, but it's not enough to know it. You see, a Bible faith is not knowledge. It's not just acknowledging a truth, but it's committing yourself to that truth. That's why the Bible says in John, the first chapter, it says, to as many as receive him, to them he gives the right to be the children of God. You can know about him and not receive him. See, what, what it means to receive him is to give him all of your life, your future, all your plans, to give him your heart, to give him your life, and to live for him, to turn your back on your old life and say, God, I am giving you my heart, I'm giving you my life, and I am going to live for you. When you do that, the Bible says he gives you the right. You become a child of God. So I'm going to ask if you're here, if you're online, if you can, to take hands with somebody. If you would, if you feel comfortable doing that, take their hand. And we're going to pray this prayer together. And I know that there's people you do not know where you stand with God today, that you're listening right now. But the Bible says we've written these things to you that you may know that you have everlasting life. You're not supposed to hope you're right with God. You need to know you're forgiven. You're right with God. You're a part of this kingdom. And we're going to pray this prayer. And if you will pray this prayer from your heart, when we say amen, you're going to be right with God. So everybody, I want you to make these words your own. Just pray this prayer out loud. Just say, oh God, I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe his blood paid for my sins. And I believe he rose again. I give him all of my heart and all of my life. I hold nothing back. I turn my back on my old life. I'm not going to live for myself any longer. I'm going to live for Jesus. He is my King. He's my Lord. And I thank you. You've heard my prayer. My past is gone. And I'm a, I am now a part of your family your kingdom, today and forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by this message. For more information, if you're in need of prayer or just want to connect with the community, go to reslife.org, follow us on social media, or email us anytime at reslife at reslife.org. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you again soon.